Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. What it's done for me, what it developed for me is this idea of this idea of a warrior fighter, that anything good in my life is going to come from a strong fight and it's going to involve a lot of suffering. That's the other piece. And I don't know how true that is for Indian families, but Russian Jews, we're amazing at suffering. <laughs> you know, there's a saying about Russians. I don't know if you've heard it, that Russians are good at three things, suffering, making others suffer and complaining about suffering. <laughs> and it would be so much funnier if it wasn't true. Yeah. Like, it is so true. And Jews were fantastic at suffering too. So we, I really, I excel at suffering. Like my family, we're black belts, particularly the women. And so there's what I grew up with and what really got ingrained in me is that anything worthwhile has to come with suffering. That if something is natural or easy, or I'm not working like nonstop for it, it's not worthwhile. And so that is the thing that, you know, and it's not, I mean, my parents, all they've ever wanted is for me to have a good life, to be happy, to be healthy, right? To marry a good guy, to have a good job, to be able to take care of myself. But it's not like my parents wanted me to suffer. But this is what I grew up with, that you're a fighter and anything worthwhile you have to suffer for. And this also kind of created this thing in me, like even when things were good, I like wouldn't allow myself to enjoy them because... Well, something wrong is going to like something's going to happen. I'm going to have to keep fighting, right? And I hear this from so many other immigrants as well. There's no idea of safety, right? It, it, and I don't mean physical safety, right? But there's no idea of just you know things like let it happen or accepting something like these were like crazy ideas. And so that is, I think, the number one way that like growing up both as a Jew in Russia being persecuted, but also with immigrant parents, that's the thing that got instilled with me, and that's probably been the biggest thing within myself that I've had to shift. And um, this is, you know, this is what my book is all about. I share the story of how I've had to find a new, a different way to live where not everything is a fight and I don't suffer all the time because doing that for, you know, 35 years eventually brought me to a halt. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Natalie, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I'm so excited to be here. I am really excited to have you here. So I have known about your work for quite some time, uh, was a big fan uh, of Happier when I first discovered it and downloaded the app. And before we get into all that and talk about your new book and everything that you're up to, uh, I want to start by asking, where did you grow up and what impacted where you grew up end up having on your life? 
So it's a great question because uh, it's led to everything I'm doing now. So I uh, was born and grew up in the former Soviet Union, uh, which is kind of funny because I grew up in a country that has a different name now. So when I grew up there, it was uh, called Russia. And I grew up in uh, Leningrad, which is now known as St. Petersburg. And that was my childhood um, when I was 13 years old. 13 and a half, my parents and I left everything behind. And by this, I mean money, possessions, family, understanding of kind of how to go about our everyday life. And we uh, left as refugees um, in an effort to try and come to the United States. Uh, so we're Jewish. And in Russia at the time, uh, persecution of Jews was uh, something not just very common, but also um, institutionalized and not just condoned, but I think encouraged by the government. Um, and that involved lots of terrible things. And so my parents had always talked about trying to make our way to the United States so we could have um, a freer, better life, particularly for me. And so on May 21st, 1989 uh, is the day we left. And so we left um, Russia, with, again, with nothing. We even had to give up our citizenship. Um, I think we had something like six suitcases. You were allowed two per person and a few hundred dollars. And we spent a few weeks in a refugee settlement in Vienna, Austria. Um, and then we took the train and then to Italy and spent another two plus months um, in a refugee settlement there while we were applying for uh, permission uh, to come to the United States as refugees. And my parents interviewed with American authorities and all that stuff. And so um, I was 13 at the time. And as you can imagine, this is a... I was going to say traumatic, but it's a tra traumatic and a formative experience. I mean, I um, I am the age that my parents were, and I have a daughter who is the age that I was. And I cannot imagine, like, I literally cannot imagine, I say this to my husband from time to time, like, picking up, leaving everything we know behind and just setting out, trying to make it to another country. And so, for me, this truly was the formative experience in my life. You know, I tell people, like, if I had to describe myself, the first word I would say is immigrant before woman, mom, daughter, friend, wife. Like, I became an immigrant in so many uh, ways because this was such a difficult experience. You know, the one thing I remember about living in the refugee settlements was that my mom, you know, would give me some food in the morning and then she'd tell me, please do not come back until 6 p.m. or so. Like, I don't have more food to give you during the day. So, you know, they had a little school set up for us kids, like go hang out with your friends. And one of the first things that one of the friends I made there, another Russian Jewish refugee, I remember he said to me, uh, oh, we're all going to hang out by the ocean. And I said, oh, that's cool. Like, cause it's a nice beach. He's like, no, because when you go hang out by the water, you don't smell food. Um, and you don't get us hungry. And so I just mentioned that as a, you know, this was what life became about at 13. And so we were there uh, for two and a half months. And then we were very grateful, very lucky to get permission to come to the United States with official refugee status, which was essential because not only were we legal immigrants, but also it gave us welfare and food stamps for a year just to have something to live on. And so we settled in uh, the project, public housing, in a little uh, town called Ypsilanti, it's outside of Detroit. Um, and that was the beginning of our life in America. And in so many ways, it led to the work I do now and it led on me on a journey because it was such a dark time for me. I mean, we were so excited to have finally made it. I remember when our plane landed in New York, I kissed the ground, you know, I was crying. We're so excited, but 
we were terrified. You know, we hardly spoke any English. Whatever English we spoke came out with this like horrible accent. You know, we didn't have a lot of stuff. I had a couple outfits that I got from a donation pile that were like mismatched and ugly, to be honest, and like these weird Russian sneakers that everyone made fun of. And I went to eighth grade. And, you know, in eighth grade, we're not the nicest humans to each other. So the kids at the school really had a, you know, they had a lot of fun in my sense. And I just felt uh, horrible. And I also kind of lost the only sense of identity that I had. Um, I was a great student. I was a top student in my school in Russia. And all of a sudden, I was in remedial English classes and, like, couldn't keep up with anything anyone was saying. And so I was just overwhelmed is the only word I can think of with just so much self-doubt and anxiety and fear of just like, am I ever going to feel okay again? And that was the beginning of my, you know, two plus decades search for how to actually feel better and feel happier. Mm, wow. Um, so many questions for, from that. Uh, when, you know, the refugee experience happened, what decisions do you remember making uh, as a child about what you would do as an adult? Hmm. It's an interesting, such a great question. You know, no one's actually asked me uh, quite that. I remember, you know, one of the, it, it's kind of like, uh, I went through a mini version of hierarchy of needs, right? Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? So the first concern was just like safety, right? So, and that to me, um, you know, wasn't as much for me. That was for my parents, like safety and food. So my parents got very busy, try, you know, trying to get jobs. And my parents are unbelievable and they're my heroes. I mean, it, I, I, like I said, as hard as this was for me, I cannot imagine how this was for them, but they set about getting jobs and my, both of my parents ended up doing, um, what they did back in Russia. My mom's a pianist and a piano teacher. And my dad was a scientist. He became a scientist and an engineer here. Uh, but for me, I went to kind of, I, I was really focused on the second part of the hierarchy of needs of just a sense of belonging, right? And so for me, uh, ability to communicate uh, was the most important thing. And so learning English, like, and that led me on a path to thinking about that the way that I was going to be okay in America and the way that I was going to honor this amazing gift, like I truly, to this day, to be honest with you, I every day I feel like I was given this amazing gift to build a life in America and am I doing enough with it, right? And so the way that I started to think about what I would do as an adult was about doing as much amazing things as I could to honor this gift of being able to live in America. And my first understanding of that as, you know, a teenager and then, you know, in college was I am going to contribute as much as I can. I'm going to do as much as I can. I'm going to be achieve as much as I can. I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to do great things. And then, like, then I'll be happy and then I'll honor the gift of being in America. And I didn't have, like, an exact career plan, but that's how I began to think, you know, in, in retrospect, like, in my TED Talk, I talk about, like, I went on a chase of the big happy because that's how I thought about it. I wanted to do these big, huge, meaningful things to honor this amazing gift that I was given of being able to live in America to truly to honor the struggle, right, to kind of almost, like, make up for the struggle that my parents went through and I went through. And so I had these big, like, I'm going to do these big, amazing things. And I'm going to almost like, I didn't know this at the time, but in retrospect, like I wanted, it was like, I was going to earn the right to feel good because I was going to honor this amazing opportunity. I got us that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
you know, it's funny you brought up loss of identity because that was one of the first things that came to my mind as you were describing the experience of, of having to leave Russia. Uh, you know, I've had people here who were on the track to becoming professional athletes, Olympic athletes, and having seen that, you know, career suddenly end, uh, having to be, you know, forced into exactly what you're talking about, a loss of identity. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering how that loss of identity gets resolved when it happens. Uh, because I think, you know, you see that for people who have aspirations to build a creative career, often they, they get to mm-hmm. you know, 10, 15 years into it and say, okay, you know what, this is not working. And, and now I'm going to have to let this go and become something else. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question, almost on a philosophical level, you know, and it's, um, the way I can kind of see it, it's really, you know, the three acts of the hero's journey. I really, uh, there's something to that structure because when I look back, that's kind of exactly what I went through. So the first way that that uh, loss of identity was resolved for me is I became very successful again, right? So it took me a long time. I worked my butt off, like just learning English alone. I don't know if you remember the show, Who's the Boss? Mm-hmm. Um, Alyssa Milano was uh, the star. She played this teenager, Sam. And so my first American dream was to speak English like Sam on Who's the Boss because she was this happy teenager and everything was awesome. And I was like, okay, when I can learn to speak English like Sam, like my life will be better. Like I'll be happy. I'll be awesome. And so I just started, I had... Um, a series of these, like, I'll be happy when, like, I'll be okay when, like, okay, when I speak English without an accent, eventually that happens. You know, when I start doing well academically, well, it's like, I worked so hard, but I graduated at the top of my high school class, at the top of my class at Wesleyan University, right? Like, so first my identity, uh, I was getting back my identity of, wow, I'm really smart. I am a really hard worker and I'm really smart because that was the identity I had before we left Russia. And so that was kind of like my uh, second act as a hero. But the thing that happened, and this is what, you know, a decade later brought me to doing what I'm doing now is that, yes, I got back my identity of this very smart, very successful, very hardworking, like fighter spirit, like gritty person. And then everything crashed for me and then everything went dark. And I, I haven't yet found a word to talk about what happened without being dramatic. Cause it was really dramatic. The only way I can describe it is I really like, I was in the darkest time of my life. All of a sudden I couldn't just push through anymore. I, all these feelings of anxiety or fear or self doubt that I was trying so hard to hide and not feel and run from that. I started to feel integrated. Well, just because you, when you just because you run from your feelings or try to medicate with achievements, they don't go anywhere. So they just all started to spill out. I was exhausted after you know working nonstop for two decades and reaching every kind of level of success that you can. And that brought me to this other um, both breaking point and a growth point of where I really had. And I until you asked me this question, I haven't thought about it. That that was also part of like really figuring out what was truly my identity and. I learned a lot of things. I thought, you know, this is where happier came from. And I discovered practices like gratitude and self-compassion, these things that, you know, having come from my background, I considered like absurd until then, like not, those are for the weak people. Like I am a strong fighter, but it was also partly my identity that I was chasing so hard, this identity that I thought I was gaining back, right? Successful fighter, always working like, and it turned out that I had this evolution of, 
what I truly feel is my sense of meaning. What I truly feel, you know, is the purpose of my life, which is to share my story with people and to help other people like find ways to be more okay, to help other people find more joy or less stress and all these things that, that I do now. And again, it, it, I never could have seen the straight line to what I'm doing now, but I had to get, I had to chase my lost identity so hard that I eventually hit a, a breaking point, which allowed the space for, I think my true sense of identity to emerge. Mm. Um, what impact, uh, did uh, growing up with immigrant parents, particularly Russian immigrant parents, have on mm. this narrative uh, of success? And the reason I ask that is because I, I'm guessing you know plenty of Indian people, given you know the nature mm-hmm. of the work that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that as Indians, uh, in particular Indian Americans raised in this country, we're very much you know uh, raised and you know this narrative of you know you want a good life, this is what it looks like, is really drilled into our head. Oh, yes. And so first of all, I have a lot, I have some very close friends um, who are similar to me. So they immigrated here from India with their parents. And I have many other friends who, you know, they were born here, but they're Indian parents. And we always laugh at how similar the cultures are. And it's interesting, too, because it's two things. It's Russian immigrant parents. um, And it's also just being Jews in Russia, because they're, you know, in our passport, it said nationality Jewish. Being a Jew wasn't a religion. It was a nationality, and it was a nationality that was persecuted. So from the earliest, earliest memories, it was you have to work 10 times harder than anyone else just to be equal because Jews are persecuted. And even in school, like, they would lower my grades, the teachers. So as a Jew, I could never get the highest grade. So if I got the highest grade, they would lower it to – so it wasn't – so it was this constant sense of uh, fighting, right? And this is the identity that I had gained uh, from the earliest, earliest um, uh, memories of mine. So this idea that if you want anything, you have to fight for it. And I don't know if that's something you can relate to, um, but that was the first piece of my identity. So to be a fighter, that anything good in your life, you're going to have to fight for No one's out there who's going to help you. It's all up to you. And so this identity of this like warrior fighter, that was the first piece. And that was all the way from Russia. And then in America, it it just kind of almost got exacerbated in a way. Because again, we were in this unknown place. Like, you know, my parents have never applied to an American college. So like they didn't know anything about this world. But it's always just been, look, you can do anything you want. But you have to, you have to work and fight. 10 times um, more than others. And so what it's done for me, what it developed for me is this idea of this idea of a warrior fighter, that anything good in my life is going to come from a strong fight and it's going to involve a lot of suffering. That's the other piece. And I don't know how true that is for Indian families, but Russian Jews, we're amazing at suffering. (laughs) You know, there's a saying about Russians. I don't know if you've heard it, that Russians are good at three things. Suffering, making others suffer, and complaining about suffering. <laughs> and it would be so much funnier if it wasn't true. Yeah. Like, it is so true. And Jews were fantastic at suffering, too. So we, I really, I excel at suffering. Like, my family, we're black belts, particularly the women. And so there's what I grew up with and what really got ingrained in me is that anything worthwhile has to come with suffering. That if something is natural or easy 
or I'm not working like nonstop for it, it's not worthwhile. And so that is the thing that, you know, and it's not that, I mean, my parents, all they've ever wanted is for me to have a good life, to be happy, to be healthy, right? To marry a good guy, to have a good job, to be able to take care of myself. But it's not like my parents wanted me to suffer, but this is what I grew up with, that you're a fighter and anything worthwhile you have to suffer for. And this also kind of created this thing in me, like even when things were good, I like wouldn't allow myself to enjoy them because well, something wrong is going to, so, like something's going to happen. I'm going to have to keep fighting. Right. And I hear this from so many other immigrants as well. There was no idea of safety. Right. It, it, and I don't mean physical safety. Right. But there's no idea of just, you know, things like let it happen or accepting something like these were like crazy ideas. And so that is, I think, the number one way that like growing up both as a Jew in Russia being persecuted, but also with immigrant parents, that's the thing that got instilled with me. And that's probably been the biggest thing within myself that I've had to shift. And um, this is, you know, this is what my book is all about. I share the story of how I've had to find a new, a different way to live where not everything is a fight and I don't suffer all the time because doing that for, you know, 35 years eventually brought me to a halt. Mm. It's an interesting paradox because uh, that approach to life clearly has led you to some pretty big successes too. Yeah. Yep. And you're, you know, you're touching right on the point. I mean, if you look on the outside, I have had, I've achieved more things that I think me and my parents ever thought I would. You know, I, I graduated at, at the top of everything. I went to McKinsey after college, a very coveted job. I became a venture capitalist at 26 as a woman, as a managing director. I started companies. I've run divisions of companies. All this, you know, I've married my college sweetheart, Avi, and we have a beautiful daughter. And like, I, I really did achieve a lot. And most of my life, I've done two things at once. Like I published my first book when I was a managing director at a venture firm while also starting a publishing company from our illegal sublet in New York City while also having a child. This is not an exaggeration, right? Like those are four enormous things. I did them at the same time because I never felt like I was doing enough. And so you're right. It is a paradox that, yes, it's led me to so many amazing achievements, but it also like almost cost me everything. You know, like this, I was sharing with you the op-ed I just wrote that the Washington Post published. It was the title is I thought grit would bring me success and it almost killed me. And the, and the, the way that the, the way that I've evolved and the thing that I'm now sharing with others, it's not that I'm against hard work. I think, you know, there's all this research that shows working hard towards a meaningful goal actually makes us happier. Now, the same research shows that when we reach that goal, we actually don't feel happy for a long period of time. We actually stop releasing dopamine. And um, because our brain is so adaptive and has a negativity bias, we stop feeling that joy. But the, so there's so much to living a happy life and fulfilling life and working hard towards goals that are meaningful to you. But the way that I've evolved, and this is what I'm, I'm you know, so passionate about sharing with others, is we have to pair that fighter spirit that grit, that suffering, that stress, we have to pair that with a healthy dose of self-compassion and treating ourselves with kindness. And these words, Trini, that I just said to you, self-compassion and self-kindness, like literally, I still have a hard time saying them, even though I'm out there speaking to millions of people now and asking them to do it. This was one of the hardest things I've had to learn. But so you're right, it is a paradox that the, the, the fighter spirit that led me to all this success is also what almost cost me everything. And by everything, I mean everything. I mean my marriage, my health, my company, everything. Mm, wow. 
Um, <clears throat> so I want to come back to this and tie it specifically to uh, the concepts in the book, but I want to ask you one other question. Yeah. What yeah. do you think people misunderstand about the refugee experience based on what we see uh, on television, what we read about in media? Like what parts of it are we not aware of as somebody who has been through this yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I always, whenever I talk about the refugee experience, I'm always like, I want to be really careful and say what I know is my experience. Um, there's many different refugees and there's many different people. So my perspective comes from my experience. And I would say it's two things. The first is like this idea that refugees want to come to America for an easy life, that it's like an easy out, you know. And like from everything I just said, it couldn't be further from the truth. The refugees I know are the hardest working people I have ever met. And they aren't just hardest working, they love to work hard, they want to work hard, and they come to this country, we came to this country with this sense of, like I said, it's like this honor to have an opportunity to build a life here. And so we are gonna do everything we can to build a life here and to try and weave ourselves and our culture into the culture that is America. And so I think there's often like, I just, it's this undertone, like, oh, you know, the refugees are escaping hardship and they just want an easy life here. I've never met harder working people than refugees. And the second thing in the media that um, this drives me wild sometimes is like we're treating refugees as this one monolithic group. But every refugee is a human being. And so just like non-refugees are all different, there's very different refugee experiences and there's people who, you know, have my kind of experience. There's people of other experiences. And so something that I'm really passionate about, and this is why I started the book has two parts. And the first part is my story is starting with a refugee story. The reason I'm so passionate about sharing my refugee story is because I think that often when we have something that is unknown to us as human beings, we feel fear. And so I think a lot of this negativity um, that we feel that we're seeing right now towards refugees, it's just because they're unknown, they're unfamiliar. And so if we could shed more light, if more of the refugees would just share their stories, not just of who they were, not just of coming over, but their stories here, like their lives here, I think that we would all just have this beautiful awakening of like, wow, there's very different people doing great things. And so that's part why I share my story is so that we can get away from kind of talking about refugees as one big monolithic group and really understanding that these are hardworking human beings who are taking an enormous risk and overcoming enormous difficulties, not just on their way here, but ongoing in their life here um, because they want to work hard and they want to build a different life. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Um, well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. And I want to start getting into the concepts of the book. But what I want to understand is how you go from, you know, venture capital, McKinsey, all of that to starting happier, like what prompted that change in your life? And what ultimately planted the seed for wanting to write this book? Yeah, well, it's a great question, because there's no logical line there. Um, so I'm glad you asked. So I, um, as I shared a little bit, so I spent about 20 years um, being a tech executive, a venture capitalist, um, an entrepreneur. And uh, what brought me to doing what I was doing is really a personal crisis, because I, um, as I share in the book, I, you know, maybe it's called burnout, I, it felt a lot deeper than that. But I just hit a wall in terms of my constant running, running, running forward to some I had this vision that happiness is this like big euphoria. I every achievement I had made me really proud. It still makes me so proud. I worked so hard, but this I never got the sense of like lasting joy. It would always like the happiness bubble popped and I had to chase the next goal and then I actually remember the moment my daughter was about eight and I just I couldn't do it anymore. I could not do it anymore and I 
um, I mean, I started to really struggle, like to do basic things like function at work or as a mom. And, you know, when sometimes uh, it takes a getting to a really dark place to open up to something you'd never considered. And I literally stumbled um, into research on happiness. And the way I stumbled into it is I, I stumbled into um, Tony Shea's book, Delivering Happiness. Tony Shea is the founder of Zappos. And he wrote this book. And in the appendix of the book, there was all this bibliography of research on well-being and emotional well-being. And I became really intrigued because, not because I was curious, but because it seemed absurd to me that anyone would research happiness. I come from a country where no one talked about happiness. That was not a real thing to care about. And so I just became uh, interested in it. And I started reading one study after another. And so there were two things in all this research that I was finding out that were like blowing my mind and I, I was rejecting immediately. The first was this idea that, you know, I always thought of happiness as an output, right? As a bonus, as uh, uh, something you get at the end if you live a great life, achieve a lot, you know, make people in your life happy, take care of people, then you get the bonus of being happy. And in this research, it was the opposite, right? It showed there's all the scientific papers that are showing that people who are happier are more productive, more creative, more altruistic, more uh, likely to have better relationships at work and at home and actually healthier. They have fewer heart attacks and fewer strokes and fewer flus and colds. And so happiness turns out to be an input into a great life, not a bonus you get at the end of it. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was even more absurd to me was this idea that there's these little practices proven by science that if you do them regularly, they actually change the chemistry of your brain, the biology of your body, and you actually feel not just happier, but less stressed out, uh, less anxious. And the first of these was gratitude. And I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say I read probably a hundred different research papers and they all said the same thing. And I just thought this was such BS because I, felt I was this complex person and how could something so simple as, you know, writing down a couple things I appreciate about my day have any impact on how I feel? Like, look at all the things I've just fought for. Look at all the things I've just achieved. And this was my first reaction to all the science. But you know, when you're desperate, you try something. And I was really desperate. I mean, I, you know, and probably the thing that was my biggest motivator was my daughter, because um, I was being a terrible mother. I was so, I was almost like catatonic. And then I would start yelling like I had no ability to be okay. And so I said, fine, I'm going to do this gratitude thing for 30 days as an experiment. My father's a scientist, so experiments. I was like, great, I'll do this as an experiment for 30 days. I'm going to do uh, two things. I'm going to write down three good things I appreciate about my day. And I'm going to have one uh, interaction of gratitude with another person, right? Because research shows that capturing gratitude and expressing it is very powerful. And so I said, I announced this to my family, I'm going to do this for 30 days, fully confident that it was not going to work. And I, you know, would feel very smug and very kind of comforted in my specialness and my complexity that, you know, I'm way too complicated for the simple stuff. And well, you know, the punchline, we're doing this interview because after about a few weeks, I could see a difference and I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to admit that this was working, but it was working. And it's not like gratitude and kindness and kind of being more present. It, it's not like it made me some happy go lucky person. Um, not at all. Uh, it's that I gained the ability to actually be present for and enjoy 
the warmth and kindness and beauty and love that were in these little moments in my day that were already there already. I didn't have to gain anything new, build anything, achieve anything. I just was now actually experiencing the joy or the connection that was already there in my life. And there were these little moments like, you know, my daughter hugging me or, you know, Avi, my husband checking in during the day or being able to help a colleague and them saying thank you, like really small moments. I'd, it's not that they weren't there before, it's that I'd only treated them as a means to an end, to an end, because I was always racing, I was chasing this big, like, the, the big thing, the big happy, the big achievement, and what I realized is when I started to honor these moments with my gratitude, they fueled me, and not with some, like, you know, never-ending happiness, but yeah, with some joy, but also with the resilience to get through the hard times. And so that's how I got on this journey. And after doing it for a month, I kept doing it. And then I started to be this annoying friend that would talk everyone's ear off about these practices. And eventually, um, I was at a time I was running a um, consumer division of this mobile company. We sold it to PayPal. And I'm not uh, someone who can work in large companies uh, happily. And I was just becoming really passionate with this idea. So I left my executive gig at PayPal and founded Happier with the same mission that we have now. And that is to help millions of people learn these tiny scientifically proven practices and make them part of their lives so they can thrive in the same way that I was beginning to. Mm. Wow. Okay. So we've talked about gratitude, which I think was like a really nice segue into talking about some of the other sort of what I consider pillars of happiness that you talked mm. about in this book. Um, and some, you know, I highlighted a lot of it, but acceptance was one where I wanted to start. Um, and, you know, I, I think this is a, a quote that I felt was really sort of fitting. You said, by relaxing our impossibly high expectations of reaching peak happiness, avoid mm. challenges or difficult emotions, we give ourselves permission to experience joy, kindness, meaning and contentment in everyday moments of our lives. Mm. Um, mm. Can you expand on this whole idea of, of practicing acceptance? Yes, and I will start by saying that there are two uh, two skills. So I, again, and I, we haven't touched on this a little bit, but just to say, one, I look at happiness as a skill. So I look at happiness as something you do, not something you feel. And I look at it as a skill that you can improve by, by practicing these different skills. And one of them is acceptance. And there are two skills in my book, acceptance and self-compassion, that are so difficult. And I think they're really difficult for creatives. And they're really difficult for entrepreneurs. They've been really challenging for me. And to your question about acceptance, just to start by kind of defining it, I used to think that acceptance meant waving a white flag of like giving up over your head, like acceptance seemed very passive to me. Acceptance meant like rolling over and life just going to be how it is. And I'm never going to improve things are never going to improve. I'll be a lazy sloth, achieve nothing and just be inconsequential. That's how I used to think about it. And what it took, it took a many different experiences and learning, but to really look at acceptance in a different way. And the idea that acceptance is not about liking or disliking something. It's actually the opposite. Acceptance is about being able to be present enough in the everyday moments of our lives that we can witness them for what they are instead of coloring them with what we wish they were, with uh, what we think they should be. This is the latter is a very common, I call this the valley of suffering that we put ourselves in, you know, when we think something is not as it should be, right? Because literally we take our reality, we decide 
the narrow set of conditions how it should be. And that's the only way that we'll be happy. And so we're just literally creating this valley of suffering for ourselves. And so this idea of acceptance is not being a, a passive choice to roll over and let life roll over you, but an active decision to be present enough in the everyday moments that we see them for what they are. And that means a couple things. When you see, when you're present in more of the moments in your life, you're present for much more of the little joys that otherwise we miss. This idea of like, you know, the cliches are here for a reason to, so to stop the smell of the roses, right? Like it sounds, it sounds so stupid, but actually guess what? When you become present in your life, you notice beautiful things. And there is research that shows that experiencing awe. So when you look at a beautiful flower, a beautiful sunset, when you experience awe, you are releasing serotonin, you feel happier, all leads to better communication and increased patience, right? So there's research to all of this. And so when you're present more of the moments in your life, when you accept them as they are, some of them fill you with joy. But I think even more powerfully so, what happens is that we're, we're able to make much better decisions because we're not just instinctively reacting to everything. And one of my favorite examples is, um, this is something we've all dealt with, but like traffic. Okay. So everyone hates traffic. You, you know, you live on the West coast near LA famous traffic. Right. And so you get into traffic and there's a bunch of traffic. And the first thing we all think of is, oh my God, like either I hate this traffic or this is not how much traffic should be at this time. And all of a sudden we're experiencing all the stress and anxiety. What, how could you practice acceptance of traffic? Like it sucks. And the thing is, this is the practice. It's not about, oh, oh my God, I love traffic. Like that's <laughs> bullshit, right? It's not that. It's that, okay, there is traffic. Like that's the acceptance part. The next part is you get to choose what you do next. You can choose to say, oh, okay, I haven't talked to my mom in a while. This is a good time to call her. Okay. You've just made a decision of how to treat this moment without throwing yourself into this like spiral of stress and road rage. Or your reaction could be, um, okay, there is traffic. Uh, I'm going to listen to some music because otherwise I'm going to lose my mind. So acceptance allows us that space, the opportunity to actually choose to actively live our life in the way that, you know, most works for us versus this constant reactivity. And so the quote that you read, this to me is the connection between acceptance and gratitude. When we are more present, and what I mean by that is something very specific, when we notice more of the everyday moments in our lives. And instead of judging them as good or bad, I like this, I don't like this, just being present and noticing them, we create so much more opportunity, so much more surface area for ourselves to A, feel more joy from these little joys that are there, or beauty or kindness or connection, but also to make active choices about how to go through these moments that fuel us versus throw us in these spirals. And that's, I think, what the quote is talking about. Whereas I used to think that there is no little moment in my life that is ever going to fill me with enough joy or more joy than this like big euphoric happiness that I'm chasing and realizing that there's no such thing as euphoric happiness. There's no such thing as a human condition when you feel good all the time. It does not exist, right? We cannot be happy all the time. The first thing I say when I get on stage, when I talk is the first thing I need you to know is a key to feeling happier is learning how to be unhappy and learning that you're not failing at life or happiness when you feel unhappy because as humans, we're meant to feel all these different emotions. And so when we actually accept that, when we understand that there's no place we can get to 
through hard work or suffering or our success that will always feel good and we start to accept that and then we honor the small moments in our days, we actually give ourselves the opportunity to find a lot more of those good moments of joy and like I mentioned with the traffic, to choose how we get through the difficult moments, little difficulties like traffic and big difficulties like you know, losing a job or a project's getting rejected or you know, someone we love being sick. Hmm. Um, I think that makes a really nice segue to talk uh, about this concept of intentional kindness. Um, you said moments of crisis shake us up, shake us out of our habits and routines, mm. they jolt us awake. We become so aware of someone's need for help that we immediately prioritize being compassionate. That's the purpose of creating a regular practice of intentional kindness to make it a priority in our daily life without waiting for a crisis to do it for us. Yeah. Um, what does the science show about intentional kindness? Like what impact does this have uh, on our Yes. Yeah. So this is actually amazing. And I think like this is the, the, the fun thing. Like I think we all know that it feels really good to do something nice for someone else. Like I think we all know that. And I knew that. But what happens is two things. And I'm going to talk about the science in a second. What happens is like I, I started to ask myself the question why am I not kind more often? Like, I feel really good when I do something nice and I'm generally a nice person. Like, why don't I do it intentionally more often? And the answer is kind of pathetic. The answer is, well, I just, I'm too busy. Well, here's the thing, right? And it was actually one of my friends, a hidden, um, Shaw is this amazing entrepreneur. He usually runs like two companies at a time. He's in my book. And I was talking to him about this because something that everybody knows about him, like if you know him, the first adjective you're going to use about him is, oh my God, he's so kind because he's always busy. He's juggling so much. He's a father. He has two kids. He's married. And yet if you ask him for something, he'll find a way to help you. And so I said, well, how come like you are not too busy? And so he gave me this example. He said, I just don't allow myself to like think about how busy I am because you know, it's not like I'm busy now. I'll have more time later. And so this idea that you know, when we're in a moment of crisis, right, a friend gets sick, like we don't say, oh, I'm too busy to help, right? We go there. And so uh, connecting this to the science. So again, we, our human brain has evolved to feel good when we do something kind. So when you do something kind, however small, like opening the door for someone, texting a friend to check in, your brain releases oxytocin. Oxytocin makes us feel really good. And oxytocin, like most of us know it as a hug hormone. When you hug someone, you release it. So our brain is such that every time we do something kind, we feel good. And a biologist actually and psychologist hypothesize that the reason our brain evolved to feel good um, when we take care of someone or do something kind is of all mammals, we take care of our young for the longest amount of time because the human brain needs so much time to develop outside the womb. And so for us to like deal with the crying, crazy, not sleeping, like, and I'm, you know, I had one of those children, like for us to deal with the difficulties of parenting, our brain evolved to make us feel good when we do something kind. And so the, there's really amazing other research on kindness. Um, for example, when you do something kind, you feel good. When you're on the receiving side of kindness, you also feel good. There's research now that shows when you observe an act of kindness, you release oxytocin, you feel good, and you are more likely to do something kind. So it's obviously this like something that we are meant to do as human beings. And so this idea that, um, we get too busy to do something kind. It really struck me. And so I actually started scheduling loving uh, kindness on my, on my calendar. I still have it. I just put it at random times during the day. I literally just put loving kindness on my calendar. And when it pops up, 
if I can, I do something kind. It can be really small. Like most often what I do is I text a friend or a family member and just like, hey, I'm thinking of you. Um, or, you know, if I can, I'll like leave a nice note for someone. And it's amazing what happens when you're intentional about kindness. Now, one other thing I want to mention, um, and this is really kind of was my awakening to this. So when I started my practice of intentional kindness, you know, so I would often, um, uh, uh, text friends and just check in and research shows that when you do kindness act in clusters, you really get the benefit. So one a day you feel good, but if you do like when you're really stressed out and you do like five kind things, you really feel the benefit because you're like in an oxytocin bath. So I became, I came up with a strategy. I call it blast your stress with kindness. And I write about it in a book. And every time I feel really stressed out, I would give myself a challenge, do five kind things right now. And most often the easiest thing to do is like check in with a friend. And so I would write these messages to friends like, Hey, just thinking of you. And you know what my friends would respond with? Oh my God, what's wrong? <laughs> that was oh my God, what's wrong? Because what we're used to is usually when someone does that yeah. is like they're suffering, they're struggling. And that's what really struck me. I was like, wait a second. Holy crap. Like my friends are used to hearing nice things from me only when something is wrong. No. And so that's the research. And that's, and so when I, you know, I do, well, I do big talks and workshops and I say to people like, you are, we're all kind, like science shows that we feel good when we do kind things. We have evolved to be kind. And so, yeah, life gets in the way. So let's treat kindness the same way that we treat work assignments and projects and picking up kids and, you know, working in our book. Let's elevate it to that level. And that's why I schedule it. And first when I say this to people, like it seems weird, but it's actually not. You schedule meetings. We schedule, you know, meetings. We schedule pickups, going to the store, surfing, painting. Like let's elevate kindness to that level. And I cannot tell you what is how much the the fabric of my life has been enriched. And just because I am intentionally looking for opportunities to be kind. And one other research piece I want to mention that I found so interesting is that research shows that uh, two things. First of all, um, it's the frequency of small positive experiences that makes us happier over our life versus peak um, achievements or peak happiness experiences. And the second is that uh, doing something kind for a stranger has the same impact in terms of how we feel as doing something kind for people we know and love. And in one of my favorite experiments, Mike Norton, he's a professor at Harvard Business School, is a friend of mine. Uh, he's run many of these kinds of experiments where, you know, they'll have a group of people walking in Starbucks. In the first group, they just say, you know, go, go do what you were going to do. We'll talk to you on the other side. And the second group, they say, you know, please go, you know, do whatever it is you were going to order and get your drink, but have one small positive interaction with someone, you know, person behind you or smile at the barista handing you your drink, just one small positive interaction. And they consistently find the people who have one small positive interaction and think how small it is, they feel happier and more uplifted. And that just speaks to me to, you know, our fundamental human need to feel connected. Do you know what the number one is? I sound like such a science geek, but like I get crazy on this. Do you know what the number one health problem in America is? Loneliness. Isol- yeah. Isolation. Yeah. Yep. So think about that. Think about that. The number one health problem that leads to depression, anxiety, heart attack, strokes, and worse, and death is isolation and loneliness. And on the opposite side is the fact that a tiny, small, positive interaction with a stranger can make you feel so good. And so to me, this is kind of like I'm on this daily call to action. 
for intentional kindness. And, you know, my family, my husband and my daughter, they laugh at me because they tell me I, I used to be, I used to look at life through a lens of efficiency. So everything, I just looked at everything. How can I get it done more efficiently? Right. So if I was going to a Starbucks, I'd have my credit card out. I know exactly when I'm going to order. I would be polite, but I was basically like in and out, like, hi, can I have a, you know, tall latte? My credit card was already in the position to go in the machine, like boom, boom, boom. And I'm out. Yeah. And now I use the lens of kindness. And so my husband and my daughter laugh. They're like, you know, uh, things with you can take a long time now because I'll talk to the barista and I'll talk to the people behind me. Like I just flew back from a speaking engagement. You should see me getting off this flight. I was talking to the flight attendant and I was connecting the person next to me to this friend because I thought I could help them. Like, this is what my life has become. And I'm smiling as I'm saying this because I, I, every day I feel like I'm weaving this fabric of human connection and guess what? The most amazing feeling is yes, in those little moments, but this is where the research shows if we do that, we feel more resilient during difficulties because I don't feel alone. Even on days where like I'm, you know, in my cave, right, working on my book or whatever it is, like I have those human connections. And so I can talk about this for hours, but the research is pretty unequivocal about this. And kind of, it's my kind of big call to action to everyone is to go have a small positive human interaction and you'll see how you feel. Mm. Wow. Um, so, you know, we're getting close, uh, to, to about an hour and close to the end of our time, but, uh, there's one other piece of this I, I want to ask you about, um, but I think I want to ask it in a different way rather than just talking yeah. about the concept, you know, you talk about connecting to a, a sense of meaning mm. and, uh, you know, knowing that you have both been a, a venture capitalist and investor, been an entrepreneur yourself, uh, what role have you seen that play in the lives of people that you have invested in that have been very successful? Mm. Um, and what are the other things that, you know, being in a place like McKinsey and having invested in people who have been successful have taught you about what achieve, uh, enables achievement at that level? Mm. Fascinating. You know, I, this is why I love talking to you because you've asked me at least three questions that no one have asked. And I've done lots of hundreds of press interviews. So I love this. Um, I never thought about it this way. And the first example that actually comes to mind. So when I was um, a VC, you know, I was young. I was inexperienced. Um, I was smart, but I didn't know the business. And one of the, within the, I think it was on the job about three months when we, uh, there was a meeting and it was with a company called Constant Contact, which I am certain, you know, yep. and many of your listeners know, nobody knew this company at the time. This was 2002. And this woman, the CEO, Gail Goodman was presenting and there was passion spewing out of her ears. And her passion was to help these small businesses who don't understand email marketing, who don't understand that it can empower them to connect to their customers. Now, this was 2002. The internet was dead, you know, in quotation marks, right? Um, email was dead. Um, my, I was at a firm uh, with very, very smart partners, but they were focused on B2B investments and constant contact seemed to them closer to consumer. And after Gail was done, you know, the partners all got together. I was in the meeting and everyone was like, yeah, you know, not our kind of thing. And I could not help myself. I did due diligence. I flew up to Boston. I lived in New York at the time. Constant contact at the time had 21 uh, employees. And I think 2,000 customers, um, I think today, well, they've since gone public, been sold for a billion dollars. They have something like 700,000 customers, just to give you an idea. But I was so, at the time, I didn't know it. 
but your question just now elucidated this for me. What was it that was driving me so much to work on this deal and try to make it happen? I didn't know the market that well. I didn't know that there were 21 million businesses, small businesses in the United States. I didn't know anything about marketing. So I, it wasn't some calculation about the market. It was Gail's connection to her sense of meaning, which was to help these small mom and pop shops who were clueless about anything online at the time and to make sure that they weren't working with some charlatans who were taking their money. It was her passion and the meaning that she was getting from helping them that in, literally infected me. And I didn't know, so I worked on this deal for a couple months and then I brought it to my partners and I negotiated the deal with Gail and the team and I said, oh my God, I'm ready, we should do this. And my partners, you know, I was, imagine this, I was 26, they were all in their 60s, incredibly successful, like self-made, huge, like very successful people. They looked at me like I had two kids. They were like, what is wrong with you? You need a partner to sponsor a deal. Like, what the hell are you doing working on this deal? Like, you're just a managing director. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, you have to, you have to spend time talking to Gail. And I convinced them to take another meeting with Gail. And long story short, the head partner at the end of that meeting said to me, fine, Natalie, I'm going to give you a million dollars to fail with and learn your lesson because I don't believe in this, but here it is, which is like, okay, that's really mean and an asshole move, but we won't talk about that. Okay. Um, well, I mean, that's like really nasty. But so long story short, they got a million dollars to invest, which is very, very small, almost nothing. I was on the board for five years. It was very hard going for a while, but Gail did it and they built an incredible company. We took them public. I left venture capital at the time. They sold it for a billion dollars uh, two years ago. And I just saw Gail for lunch actually a few months ago, a few weeks ago. Wow. And the reason I take time to tell the story is because Gail's connection to her sense of meaning, which was to help these small businesses, wasn't just something that helped her build an incredible business. It infected me, which led me to fight so hard to get the money to her. After we invested, I found out that the, and I knew this, that the constant contact had burned through about $30 million before they came for this next round that I invested in. I knew that. What I didn't know is that their existing investors said to them, unless you get a new investor, you have to shut the company down. So Gail's sense of meaning, not just helped grow the company, not just infected me and made me work my butt off and break all sorts of rules. It literally saved the company. And to me, that's the best story that I can tell hmm. that when we connect to our genuine sense of meaning, and by the way, research on this is if, if, if like, and I ask your readers to do this, like write down what is meaningful. So two things I want to say, psychologists define a sense of meaning as connecting something you are good at in service of someone else, to help someone else or someone other than you. And research consistently shows that when our goals are intrinsic, so they're connected to the sense of meaning, we feel great as we work towards them and we feel good when we achieve them. When our goals are extrinsic, when they lack the sense of meaning, when they're about money or fame or something like that, we actually do not feel satisfied when we reach them. There's actually kind of a, a down, a feeling of like, oh crap, I'm missing something. And so this is that power, right? And this is the research on it. And this has been my own experience that when you are able to connect to your sense of meaning, not only do you become successful in what you do, you, part of the reason, let me actually say it this way, part of the reason I believe that being connected to your sense of meaning makes you successful is because you get all these other people around you infected with your sense of meaning and they step up to help you. And I have certainly found this in my experience with Happier. The story of Gail is the best one to me, but another one you asked me about McKinsey, right? And that was a while ago, but I 
I, you know, I won't name this person, but one of the top partners um, in the New York office when I was, I was just an analyst there. We had this very successful partner and he was very like, he was famous almost for like, he could close any deal and, you know, like clients loved him. He was one of the saddest people I've ever met. And there's something, I don't know, I have this weird personality, like people reveal themselves to me. So like he told me once how unhappy he was. And I didn't know this at the time, but like after you asked me this question, I ran so much of like what I saw him do and the conversations we had through this lens of, do I feel like he was doing things out of a sense of meaning? I don't think so. I, I, I'm not judging it. I just don't think like he derived, he connected what he was good at in service of others. I think he had other reasons. And so to me, this is, I guess, the best articulation I can give of why people who connect to their sense of meaning and infuse it in their jobs aren't just happier, but more successful is because it is infectious. And when we truly are connected to it, we infect other people around with it and they step up to help us. And the one last thing I want to say about the sense of meaning, because it's, you know, it's like picking favorites in my book is like, they're all children, but that may be my favorite chapter, uh-huh. uh, which is a bigger why, because I, there's all these articles that are like, you know, don't chase happiness, chase meaning. I think it's BS. I think you cannot ha- be happy if you don't have a sense of meaning. I think they're connected. And so um, it is my favorite chapter because I don't feel we talk about enough. And one of my favorite things that I just want to mention, uh, one of my favorite stories um, you know, President Kennedy, we all know he gave that fam- very famous speech when he said, I want everyone in our country to contribute to getting a man on the moon, right? Now, he should have said man or woman, but that's okay. Otherwise, uh, the speech was great. And so he asked every American to step up and contribute. And a couple months after he gave that speech, he was touring NASA and he ran into a janitor cleaning the floors. And he stopped and he said, You know, hi, I'm President Kennedy, and what's your name? What do you do? And the janitor gave him his name and he said, well, President Kennedy, I am helping get a man on the moon. So this janitor didn't say I'm cleaning the floor. He connected to his sense of meaning. And there's actually research, um, one of my favorite research studies, it was done in a large hospital system by a Yale professor and her team. And they were looking at job satisfaction of different professions. And they found a crazy disparity in job satisfaction of janitors who work there. So some janitors who made the same amount of money as others worked there for the same amount of time had significantly higher job satisfaction. So the researchers went in and started asking them a simple question. Can you please tell me what you do? And the janitors with the low job satisfaction said things like, you know, I clean the windows or I take out the garbage. You know, they focused on the what. The janitors with the highest job satisfaction said things like, I help patients heal or I help the families of the patients, you know, feel a little bit better while they're here. They focused on the why. Right. They connected to their empathy, to their strength of kindness in service of others. And think about that. Right. Like and those are janitors doing really burdensome like jobs that I think most of us would not want to do. And some of them increase their job satisfaction simply by connecting to their sense of meaning. And so this is I could go on about this on and on because I'm so passionate about because it's it. it it elucidated so much for me, but also I love how you asked the question because I never thought about it that it doesn't connect into your sense of meaning isn't just doesn't just make you happier, but because it is infectious, it gets all these people around you to step up and help you so you become more successful. And that's the Gale story from Constant Contact. Wow. Um, I think that makes a, a really sort of beautiful way to, to wrap up our conversation. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it 
is being true to themselves and bringing out their inner awesomeness in the most real way, whatever that means to them. And the people in my life that I admire and I'm inspired by, when I ask myself, like, what what is it about these people that I think makes them shine? Like, why am I so drawn to them? And why are they so successful? It's always because I feel like they are being who they are. And they have worked very, very hard at the craft of sharing who they are with others in a way that brings them meaning. So that's what I think of unmistakable. Hmm. Wow. Um, well, where can people find out more about uh, you, your work, and the book? Awesome question. So the book is called Happier Now, How to Stop Chasing Perfection and Embrace Everyday Moments, Including the Difficult Ones. It goes on sale on May 1, and you can find it at your favorite bookseller, including Amazon and all the small and big offline and online booksellers. To learn more, just visit happier.com. It's spelled exactly like it sounds, and you can come and subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which I write myself. You'll find lots of awesome videos and resources. Many are free and accessible, um, and those are the best ways to find me and the book. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.